Welcome to the Sunset Community Church podcast. You're listening to sermon audio from our Sunday morning services. For more information about Sunset Community Church, visit us online at sunsetcommunity.church. Good morning. So if you have your Bible with you, would you please open it to the book of Titus? And if you're using the Bible right in front of you, um, that will be on page 1031. Titus chapter 2, I'm going to start reading from verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us all wickedness and to purify for himself to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Sometimes when people... Uh visit our church, and they're trying to figure out if this is the church uh, that they want to connect to and invest in, they'll take me up on my offer uh, to grab coffee or to grab lunch so I can share about who we are, what we believe, why we do what we do. Um, A few years ago, I was sitting in my office downstairs and and hanging out with with a guy who was asking me questions about our church. And he said, hey, I I love how your church is, is... diverse ethnically and culturally. I I love how you all are serving the community. Those things are attractive to me and my family. But he said, what I really want to know is how central is the gospel? How important is the message of Jesus, his his grace and his salvation? How important is this to you in your preaching? How important is this to you in, in the ministry of the church? Like the other things you do are great, but what about this? Well, that person was Brian Williams. And when I got to know Brian, I saw how important the gospel was to him in everything that he did. I remember one of the first times we had dinner at their house, and my, my wife and I, and most people, when they pray for dinner, it's, Lord, bless this food, thanks for our friends, you know, something like that. Brian would literally preach the gospel as he was praying for the meal, he was that kind of guy. And I was thinking about this Sunday. It's like, how do we continue on in a series on the book of Titus after losing somebody like Brian? Brian and I met regularly for about a year and a half. He, he told me, he said, I desire to be in ministry. Could I intern under you? Uh, the Monday he, I found out he was gone, we were supposed to meet that afternoon. The last time we met, two, two weeks prior to that, he said, hey, for our conversation, can we talk about what you're going to be preaching on on Sunday? And so we sat and we studied Titus together. And so as I was thinking about today, it's like, do I scrap where we're going and do we, do we look at some other texts? Because there's what Ben read was beautiful, Thessalonians. There's so much that speaks to the, to the moments that we're dealing with right now. And I thought, what would Brian want? He would not want it to be about him. He'd want the gospel preached. He'd want me to continue on in Titus. So... I think of Brian this morning. So if you're joining us, we are walking through this small but important piece of Scripture that is very gospel-centered. In fact, what Dale just read is part of the text that we're going to read today. Now, if you don't 
uh, maybe you don't come from a church background, or maybe you have, you've grown up in church, there's this question that I think is important for all of us to ask, wherever you are in that paradigm, and the question is, what makes someone a Christian? What makes someone a Christian? The way they vote? What sports team they root for? How many times a month they go to church? How much they've read the Bible? How often they pray? How much they give? What makes someone a Christian? That's what this young church on the island of Crete that this letter was written to was dealing with. They were wrestling with. They were saying, what does it mean now that we've received what Jesus has done for us? What does it mean to live that out in this culture, in this time that we live in? How would you answer that question if somebody were to come to you and say, what makes someone a Christian? As we saw last week, we looked at the text before the text Dale had just read. We saw that some people in this culture, in this, even in these early churches that were starting, they were ready to say what makes somebody a Christian. And what they were saying was, oh, you got to do this thing. you got to act this way. You have to follow these rules. you got to believe these extra things. Then you can be okay with Christ. And so much of that is dependent on who? You. And so they were summarizing the following, the faithful following of Christ as something that you had to do. And so Paul is pushing back against that. He's telling Titus, hey, as you, as you teach in these churches, as you set up godly leadership, those are bad directions. Don't let those types of instructions, that type of teaching be present in the church. You got to rebuke and you have to silence people that are doing that. And so we pick up Today, Titus chapter 2, following that rebuke of those bad directions with some good ones. Titus chapter 2 says 1 through 14. We're going to look at the entire chapter today. How many of you read a chapter this morning? No, just kidding. You don't need to tell me that. But at least today you'll have read a chapter of Scripture together. We're going to read this together. Titus chapter 2 opens up with this. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. What is doctrine? It is teaching. So keeping in mind all the bad directions, all the bad false teaching that was just addressed, Paul then turns to Titus and says, one of your roles now is to teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine, what is good, what is right. So in addition with finding those good leaders with good directions, Titus is tasked with this. He's tasked with teaching the right things. And in the verses that follow, we're going to get a snapshot of what these good directions look like. As in contrasted, and if you haven't read it, then I encourage you to go back and read it. In contrast to the bad directions that were coming into the church, here are some good ones. If you're wondering what it means to faithfully follow Christ, here's some examples of that. This li- these lists are not comprehensive. They're not meant to, to, to be a detailed... Um, exposition of every aspect of our Christian life, but they are meant to orient us towards what is good. But here's what I want to do first. Sometimes when we get into a list of like do's and don'ts, then we immediately think, okay, that's, that's the crux of it, right? To be a good Christian is all about the things that we do. And that's why we had Dale read the passage she just read, but I want to read it again because it, it follows 
these instructions that Paul is telling Titus to give. And again, this is the gospel. Verse 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Who is the grace of God? Jesus. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So before we look at the directions, I actually wanted to start with what Paul ends with because I want us to have the gospel in mind. So keep this in mind. These are the headwaters of the Christian faith. Out of who we are as a people of God, the behaviors that we display, all of that comes out of this. You know what headwaters are, right? It's, it's the source of a body of water. One of the biggest rivers in the United States is the Columbia River. Has anybody ever seen the Columbia River? It flows just south of us, out through Portland and Astoria. I lived in eastern Washington for a period of time, and it flows through kind of eastern Washington. You cross over it if you're going to Spokane. Did you know that the headwaters of the Columbia River, from where they dump into the ocean, are 1,200 miles in Canada up to Columbia Lake? 1,200 miles, the Columbia River flows to the ocean. And so the headwaters of the Christian life shouldn't be a surprise. It's indicative in the word, is Christ. Jesus, God in the flesh, appeared, and he offers salvation to all people. Jesus redeems. Jesus purifies. He is the source of our Christian life. And it is out of our relationship with Jesus that we find our definition of what it means to be Christians. Jesus uses similar imagery of water in John 7, verse 38, where he says, Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And so the Bible uses these images to give us a picture of the purifying, fresh, good work of God that is given to us through Jesus. And from those headwaters we grow, we mature, we become more like the one whose name we claim, Christian, like Christ. As amazing as the Columbia River is, there are some things that affect the Columbia River's flow. I'll look this up. You can check me later, but there are 14 dams along the Columbia River that affect the way that it flows. They affect the purity of the water. They They affect the life that enjoys the Columbia River. And as we saw last week, there are dams in our Christian life as well that that keep that living water from flowing through us like they ought. It could be bad teaching that we believe about who God is, about who we are. It could be cultural compromise. Well, this isn't so bad. I'll let this in. Or it could just be remaining sin in our lives that God has yet to completely free us from. But Jesus wants to flow through us unencumbered so that we and the world will be blessed. 
And so much like the qualifications for church leadership earlier on in Titus' letter, we are then given a picture of Christian maturity. We're given a picture of what it means to do good as the people of God. And so the words that follow aren't a description of tasks or rules, but they are a description of maturity. And so in contrast to the bad directions at the end of chapter 1, here are some good ones. If you're an older man, an older woman, a younger man, a younger woman, these apply to you because that's who they're addressed to. So listen up. Going back to verse 1. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. And then Paul starts. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Now, I don't know where you draw the line of older and younger, but if you feel old, this is for you. (laughs) If you've started to get that AARP mail, which they send earlier, I think, than they used to, Maybe this is for you. I don't know. We have a phrase in our culture, older and wiser. But those two qualities don't always exist in tandem. Sometimes it's just older. Sometimes it's older and more ornery. Older and more negative. Get off my lawn. And so Paul is speaking to older men 2,000 years ago, and I think it's pretty applicable today. He says this. He says, be temperate, be self-controlled, be sound in the faith and love. Be sound in the faith and love. I can see him saying, don't give, give in to conspiracy theories or get caught up in political idolatry. Be sound in the faith and in how you love. And in endurance, finish well. Finish well. Then he goes on to older women. Again, don't know where he draw these lines, but likewise, like the men, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Now there's a purposeful intertwining, I think, in these instructions for older women and and older men. The, The gospel of Jesus was pretty radical when it came into the Roman world and how it gave equal worth to people who are often marginalized in the ancient world. And so this this command to be reverent or to be respectful was meant to serve as a reminder to the women that this new freedom that they were finding in Christ was not to be used as a license to be disrespectful. Again, Paul's concern is the word of God, the gospel of God. Instead, he said to model for the younger generation how to love well in both action and word. And in modeling this love for your children, this modeling this love for your husband, you have a unique opportunity to bring glory to God. In effect, what Paul is saying is for these women in this church and a culture that was often maligned them and 
pushed him to the margin. He says, you have an important leadership role in the church. Which all the men said, amen. Now there's a couple lines in here that maybe in our current day will make us bristle. So I don't want to gloss over those. If you look at verse 5, he says to be busy at home. This one's been abused over the years, but this is not a command to only stay at home. (laughs) Proverbs 31 talks about a woman of wisdom who's busy in the marketplace. So this is not a command to stay busy at home, but it does acknowledge the unique call that women have in the care and leadership of the home front. And in a similar way that older women were to not use their freedom as a, as a license for rebellious behavior, Paul wanted the younger women to display a similar attitude, both in the home and toward their husband. And I can imagine in this context, many young women were becoming believers and were married to men that were not yet believers. And so Paul is saying, hey, still love your husbands, still submit to their leadership Still prefer them so that, why? What does he say? So that no one will malign the word of God. So for younger women in our church, maybe you were blessed with a, with a mother that modeled what it meant to be a godly woman. For younger men, maybe you were blessed that, by that um, with a father. But either way, we see this importance in the church of being multi-generational that there are older men and women that have walked faithfully with God that are both older and wiser, that look to the younger generation to impart what they've learned, to point them to the truths of God. And so that's a key aspect of a healthy church. Those are the people we want to emulate, those who love their family and their husbands and their God well. Paul continues addressing the young men. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, now switching to Titus, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. There's a theme here, and we'll, we'll finish these commands, but there's this theme here of living in such a way that it points to the goodness of God in all of these things. For young men, for young women, for older men, for older women. In some ways, our culture in the first century in Crete had similar expectations of young men. That is, they had very low ones. But here Paul is addressing Titus, who was probably a young man himself, saying, Lead by example. Push back against those false, those low expectations. I remember years ago, I was a youth pastor, and I was sitting in my office with a 14-year-old boy that was part of our youth ministry. And I, and I took two, two objects on my desk, and I said, here's God, here's you. How close do you feel to God right now? Just in your relationship with God. I was just trying to get an idea of where he was at spiritually. And he took him, and here's God, and he goes, meh. Right there. And then he said to me, before I could respond, he says, I mean, I'm 14 years old. How close could I be expected to be to God? And I looked at him and I said, who 
told you that? Who told you that? Who told you that at 14 you couldn't have a close and vibrant relationship with God? At some point, whether it was spoken to him by his family, whether it's just absorbed through the culture, he believed a lie about himself. And so this is the call for us, is not low expectations, but high expectations, but not because of things that we've done, but because of the goodness of God and how it leads us. Paul closes out this orientation towards the good things of God by addressing another group that would have been present in the Roman world that is not present in our world, at least in our church. Verse 9 says this, Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted. And here we go again. Why? So that in every way, they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. Now, up to this point in history, slavery had been a common practice in the world for thousands of years. The most common reason for slavery in the ancient world was due to war. In the Roman world, when this letter was written, it's estimated that in some cities of the Roman Empire, a third of the residents were slaves. And Rome itself may have been 50-50. Imagine that. As the Roman Empire expanded due to military actions, so did slavery. There were different types and reasons for slavery, though. Some of it was slavery as punishment. There wasn't jail industrial complexes like we have in our country today. So if you committed a crime, you lost your rights and you became a slave. Some of it was slavery as paying off debt. You couldn't pay your bills, you worked them off. Some of it was slavery as willing service. You have a choice to be homeless and out on the street, or you can essentially put yourself under somebody and, be, and work for them in a type of indentured servitude, almost like an employment. And then, as I mentioned, some slavery, a lot of slavery in the Roman Empire was due to war. In the household, slaves were paid. Most slaves were paid and often lived okay lives, had their needs provided. In many cases, slaves could eventually buy their freedom. And in Jewish households, slaves were set free after seven years, a type of debt forgiveness. So whenever we say slavery, especially in an American context, we think of chattel slavery, evil institution. But this is unlike chattel slavery in the American South. Slavery, when this particular letter was written, wasn't just based on ethnic oppression or racial supremacy. But as I just mentioned, as you heard, it's varied, it was vast, and it was a pretty normal part of the Roman world. So we can ask, and we should ask, is slavery compatible with the gospel of Jesus? Is it justified by the Bible? Absolutely not. Any reading of Scripture that attempts to condone slavery is opposed to the gospel of Jesus. And we know, we can look back now and see, the institution of slavery eventually would become undone, and the way it would happen was by changed hearts and minds, and I think that's what Paul had in mind in these instructions. 
He says what? He says this. Live so that in every way, the teaching about God, our Savior, will be attractive. So this is really the big picture. Christians are to live in a way that points to Christ. Live in a way that points to Christ. And so we circle back to the headwaters because that's where we have to start and end when we think about our lives as Christians. Because the instructions we just read only make sense if we've heard the gospel. So one more time. Here it is. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. The gospel is the headwaters of the Christian life. We can do all sorts of Christian-type things, but that doesn't save us. Jesus does. And in Jesus, we are freely given the favor of God, the forgiveness of sins and redeemed life. And it is out of that favor that our affections and our actions are transformed. And if, you, if your affections and actions haven't been transformed, then there may be a dam in the river of your life. There may be remaining sin. There may be false teaching you believed. There may be things in culture that you've accepted as okay and right when Scripture says it is not. But again, the gospel, the gospel is the headwaters. So what makes you a Christian? After calling out the bad directions and giving the good ones, Paul wraps up this section by saying this to Titus. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. You know, in our current day, religious legalism and progressive culture ideology actually have a lot in common. Both of them teach a set of values that are contrary to the gospel of Jesus. Religious legalism sets out a bunch of rules that you have to follow to truly be saved. But the gospel of Jesus points us to grace. Nothing that we did. It's all about what he did. Progressive culture preaches this type of message, this gospel of self-idolatry. There is no right or wrong, just what you feel in the moment. But the gospel is different than that as well. The gospel actually does hold up a standard of righteousness. But that righteousness is not rooted in me or you or what the culture feels at the moment. But it's rooted in God himself. And so just like Titus, we shouldn't be surprised when gospel deniers from both sides, from religious legalism or progressive ideology look down on us, or as Paul would say to Titus, despise us, but we won't waver. Why would we? The gospel is far better than anything this world has to offer. Jesus offers us springs of living water. Other messages only have bottles of dust. 
Jesus offers us life to the full. Society only offers pills and screens. Jesus restores our identity. Culture is trying to erase and confuse it. The world will sell you a membership you can't afford. Jesus gives you grace that's been paid in full. And this is what we hold on to. This is what we remember. And so may we be a church that holds on to the grace through good times and bad times, that recognizes, recognizes the bad directions from the good ones and lives in such a way that the gospel is made known in our communities. Amen. Would you stand with me today? If you would like prayer after our gathering, our leadership team will be available to pray with you. But right now, I just want to pray as we go. Father, like the psalmist would do so many times, we came in this morning with lament, with heavy hearts, with feeling the loss of our friend, the loss of a father and a husband. And it will still weigh on us heavily in the days to come. But also like the psalmist did is in our time here, we've put our eyes on you, on the hope that we have in you, on the good news that you offer that is nowhere to be found in culture, nowhere to be found in other religions, but it is only found in Jesus. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for this opportunity to, to have an elevated perspective. And Lord, as we go from here, may we be people that are anchored in the hope that we have in you. No matter what our bank account says, no matter what our government says, that our hope is secure. And so, Father, we just, we leave this place asking that your spirit would go with us, that you would guide us into all wisdom and maturity in the days ahead. In Jesus' name we pray. You've been listening to sermon audio from Sunset Community Church. Sunset Community Church is located in Renton, Washington. For more information, visit our website at sunsetcommunity.church.